We're going to talk about worship this morning. Um, you know, I say this a lot, or I think I do. Maybe I don't. I feel like I do. Um, you, you guys probably don't realize that. To, to me, uh, sometimes I feel like I repeat some of the same things over and over again because um, I, I think a lot about what we're talking about from week to week. And maybe you don't remember what we talked about last week. I don't know. But um, but the, uh, I say this. Uh, everybody worships. We are, we are hardwired um, to worship. Uh, worship, in a sense, is not a choice. Uh, who you worship or what you worship is a choice, uh, but you are made and you are created. It is in your DNA, so to speak, to be a worshiper. Um, um, things do what they're made to do, right, unless they're broken. So we get frustrated when things don't do what they're made to do. Uh, when the TV, I'm doing this because when the TV clicker doesn't change the channel like it's supposed to do and we bang it, right, uh, and we get frustrated and we change the batteries and all that sort of stuff. When you're trying to send your text message and it won't go through or your internet doesn't work properly or your car doesn't crank, we get frustrated because we want things to do what they're supposed to do. And the thing with humans is, or is we're created to worship God. We're created to know Him and to love Him and to extol Him and to worship Him. And when we're broke, when we're, when, when we're off course, it's not that we stop worshiping, it's that we stop worshiping Him or we stop worshiping Him properly. But everybody worships because you're, you're, you're made to worship God, but you will worship something or someone. Now, Christians are people who have been saved from kind of the pitfall of humanity. We are people who have been saved from the rebellion against God that all humanity has been bent towards ever since the fall of rebelling against God. And when we rebel and we reject God, ultimately we'll try to replace God in our lives. And we are people that have been saved by that. If you're a Christian this morning, if you know Christ, you've been saved from that. But you still, we still got our problems. And we, we still struggle sometimes in worship. And, and in particular, we, we tend to think about a lot of times, you know, the, we talk about valleys in the Christian life and we talk about mountains, right? The high times and the low times. And we tend to associate struggle with the difficult times, um, with the time when, when things aren't going well. And we tend to think those are the times that we will be tempted um, to not worship God appropriately, live our lives appropriately. And that's true. There are temptations, so to speak, in the, the valleys of life. But there's also temptations, and something we don't talk about a lot, when things are good. When, for lack of a better term, you're on the mountaintops. When things are going well, and everything seems to be right with you in the world, and you just feel like God has smiled on you, and everything seems to be going great in your life. So whether it's in, like we talked about last week uh, with the Apostle Paul, we talked about if you were here last week, we talked about how he learned to be content in good times and in bad times. We experienced both the good times, the low times, and the bad times. And you experience times of abundance, and you might experience times of, of more difficulty. Um, but there's different temptations in those times, and we have our own special temptations uh, in the good times. And in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, uh, we have kind of the where God is giving the law to Israel. Just to kind of set the context for you this morning. We're going to kind of focus on verses 10 through 15, but we're going to use a lot of what's around there uh, this morning. And at this point in Israel's history, right, this was the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel's history, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So God calls Abraham, and the people of God, uh, he, he blesses Abraham's lineage, he has sons and sons and sons and daughters, and his, his, his lineage just keeps multiplying, and they're the people of God, and then they're enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years, just as God told Abraham they would do, he, it would happen many years before. And then God delivers them, he raises up Moses and uses Moses to help deliver them out of Egypt, 
And as they come out of Egypt, you'd think they would just be awesome and things would be great and they would just be so thankful that they would just worship the Lord perfectly and walk with Him hand in hand. But if you know the story of Israel, you know they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, time and time again questioning and doubting and testing the Lord and struggling in their walk with God. And now we're at a time where they're getting ready for the, the getting closer to going into the promised land and God's giving them the law. Okay, He's telling them how I want you to live and what it looks like to be holy is what He's doing. And here at the beginning of Deuteronomy um, chapter 6, now we're going to start in verse 4 actually, he kind of sets the table in the first three verses, but we're going to start in verse 4. Uh, he starts with what we call, is what it's called um, um, to, to, to Jewish people as the Shema. And this is the very centerpiece of the law when you get to ver- verse 4 here that we're going to pick up with. This is what Jesus said, uh, what all the law and the prophets hang on. So look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 4. I'm going to read through verse 9. Talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get into kind of the main text as we just kind of set up this morning. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you see there in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, and, and when you see here in this context, it doesn't just mean I want you to, to hear these words, read these words, listen. It, it, it includes obedience. And so when he says here, it's listen and obey. Kind of like when you look at it, you know, when you're talking to your child. Do you hear me? You don't just mean like, are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you going to do what I'm saying, right? Do you, do you hear me? Are you going to appropriate what I'm saying? And the Lord says, hear, O Israel. I want you to listen and to apply this truth. And he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the big idea there is the uniqueness of God. Yes, the oneness of God. We know we, we worship one God who exists in three persons. We call that the Trinity. The, the oneness of God. There's only one God. And he's not moving in a million different directions. He's got one purpose. He is united. There's one God. But he's also, here he's pointing out the uniqueness of God. There is no other God. There's one God and one God only. And there was only be one God that Israel was to worship. And they were to be his people. And he was to be their God. And he says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Now that sounds like a really big command. Unless verse 4 is right. Right? If he's telling the truth in verse 4, verse 5 makes sense. So Jesus was asked in the New Testament, What's the greatest commandment? And this is what he quoted. And he said, And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, all the law and prophets kind of, they hinge on this. In other words, you you can sum up what God means in the law when he wants you to live a holy and right life, what what it looks like to live holy and live life as God has designed and what God wants you to do by loving him with all of you and loving people as you love yourself. Now, that's what he's driving at here. The point is that he desires us to love Him supremely. When He says, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We could break all those things out down, but the big idea is don't compartmentalize your love for God with all that you are, mentally, spiritually, intellectually, with your will, with your body, with everything in you, you are to express your love for God. And in verse 6, He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Because you can't separate your love for God from the, your adherence to the Word of God. And he says, the words I command you shall be on your heart. God has always been about the heart. Sometimes if we're not careful, we'll think in the Old Testament, God was all about performance. And in the New Testament, God was all about the internal and the heart. God's always been about the heart. 
You see this, right? When he's giving the law and he says, I want it on your heart. God was always after the heart. He's always been after the heart. He's always been about internal transformation. And this passage is looking forward to the new covenant when God would give a new heart to his people. And in verse 7, he tells him, he says, I want you to teach this word diligently to your children. This covenant that I'm giving you. I want you to teach it to your children. He doesn't want the worship to stop with them in this generation. He wants it to be generational and pass down from child to child to child to child. He says, I want you to talk of them when you sit down and when you walk. When you're active and when you're inactive. When you lie down and when you rise. At the, the beginning of the day and the end of the day. I want to bind them on your eyes and hands. Everything you do. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and gates. And the big idea here is not so much to go out and literally do this. What God's big idea here is this. That in all of your life, it, you're going to be consumed by this covenant and by my word. That there's never a time, there's, there's never a time that's not a teachable time in your home. This is God's, by the way, kind of a sidetrack, discipleship plan for your home and for your children if you're a parent. It's about more than taking them to church or even setting apart a time at the beginning or the end of the day to, to, to teach them something from the Word. It's about when you sit down and when you lie down. It's about throughout the lessons of life, sowing in the Word of God, that it incorporates all of your life, that it's not compartmentalized, that it consumes. And that's God's ideal here and His desire. Now, this is the instruction that's being given. Now, what I want to focus on this morning is the warning that starts in verse 10. God begins to warn them. Now, why in the world would God need to warn them? Think, things are great. God's created people, right? He has chosen a people. Those people go and they become slaves in Egypt. Well, he saves them out of that. They spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness as they, as they fail many times in their struggle and their worship with him. And, but now they're getting this promised land. And you have to remember, the promised land goes all the way back to Abraham. We tend to link it to Moses. That started with Abraham. God, gonna, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to multiply you for generations. So hundreds of years before. And so now they're about to get the land. They're moving closer. That's getting closer as Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. And as they're getting ready for that, God begins to warn them that even though he's calling for a wholehearted obedience, adherence to his covenant, and all-out love for him, he begins to warn them. And the reason is because everything could go wrong. It's not what could go wrong. Everything could go wrong. Because we're, while we're created to worship God and wired to worship, we will worship something. And because of the sin that started, as we say time and time again, all the way back at the garden, because of the sin in our hearts and our lives, we tend to rebel against God and replace God. That is just, the, that is just human nature. I rebel against God and I replace God. I look for something else. And so in verse 10 starts his warning. So let's look at verses 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery." It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. And He destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now that's a warning. Right? So God knows His people. He's created His people. He's redeemed His people. And He knows their tendencies. And He knows the struggles. And He knows the battles they're going to face. And Israel's biggest problem was the same biggest problem we have, and that was themselves. That's our biggest problem. That was their biggest problem. And as they've moved from a time of wandering in the wilderness, as they're moving out of that, they're going to move towards the promised land. 
There's a lot of temptations that, that they won't face anymore, that they face in the wilderness. You know, when they were in the wilderness and they come to a place and there was no water, which he talks about in verse 16, and there's no water, they face the temptation of whether they would believe God would provide for them water or not. They're not going to face that temptation in the promised land. There's going to be plenty of water. So there, there are temptations that you face in times of difficulty and temptations you face in the valleys or in this case in the desert that you don't face in the promised land or even in the mountaintops and in the good times of life, but you still face temptation. They're new temptations. Temptations they haven't really experienced before in generations that they're about to experience. Some of you face temptations that your mom or dad didn't face, that your grandparents didn't face. You, you, you're in a different place, different culture. You face different temptations. These people came from a culture that had spent 400 years, generations, enslaved in Egypt. And then this current generation had been wandering in a desert. And now this new generation was going to go and be in a land full of houses and things that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant and cisterns that they didn't dig. And everything was going to be kind of handed to them on a platter. And so they were going to face a whole new set of temptations that the generations before them had not faced. And here's what we learned. The reason there's always temptation... Just different temptations, whether it's good times or whether it's bad times, whether it's times of need or times of abundance, is because of us, <laughs> who we are on the inside. James chapter 1, let me read to you from verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So when we're tempted to do evil, we can't just, we can't blame God. And you can't just shake your fist at the devil. You've got to understand that that temptation came from within you. That we're lured and enticed by our own desires. So that's why no matter the circumstances, they can be really good. They can be really bad circumstances. Temptation is still there because the temptation is not just about the circumstances. Temptation is about us, about our heart and our life. And we'll find things to be tempted by because it comes from within. And not simply from without. And the good news of the gospel is that for believers, if you're a Christian this morning, God gave you a new heart. And that you now desire to love and worship God with all your heart and soul and strength. But, just like Israel, we're not capable of loving God well. Or, well, we're not capable of loving God at all on our own. Listen to what Ezekiel 36 says about the new heart. We, re, we come to this passage from time to time. It helps us connect the Old and the New Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says... God says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's God's plan to get you to obey (laughs) and to get me to obey. Is that he would remove the heart that's hard and doesn't want to love him and obey him and give us a new heart. And that he, his very spirit, would take up residence in our life and enable us and empower us to obey his commandments. All right? And so, but we still have this flesh. We still have this part of us that still is tempted to sin and, and it, will, it just messes up. And it still struggles. We're, we're not finished. We're, God's still working on us, so to speak. And just because we live under the new covenant doesn't mean we can't still struggle and fail just as they did in, under the old covenant. So what can we learn from this passage about our worship of God in the good times, so to speak? The first thing here is, I see, is that blessings handled poorly can become worship distractions. Blessings handled poorly become distractions in our worship. They, they, they get us off track. He says, he gives them all these good things. He says, be careful that when you come into this place with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill. They're good things, right? Cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Not a bad thing on the list. 
God doesn't say, be careful that you come into this place just full of sin and wickedness. He says, no, be careful that you come into this place like it's going to be like the lap of luxury to you compared to what you're used to. I mean, things that, and by the way, I'm giving you this. You understand that? This is, this is not something they went out and they got and the Lord didn't want them to have. This is the fulfillment of the promise. This is what they've been working on and God's been leading them to for hundreds of years. And God says, now be careful that you get it when you get it. That you don't forget it. That you don't forget. He brought them back over and over. He says, "He brought." He says, "I brought you into this land. It's the land that I have given you." He's reminding them on the forefront. He's humbling them. Right? You, you didn't do this. I, I, I did this, and it's a reminder to them that it was the Lord's generosity and His grace that had brought them to this place. And God reminds them throughout this passage, you did not, you did not build these systems. You did not build these houses. You did not, you did not, you did not. And God's warning to them is that they will be so satisfied by what's been given to them that they will take God's good blessings and turn them into distractions and even idols that they'll become full, he says, and forget the Lord. That's the phrase. That you'll become full, satisfied, happy, and so content, like we talked about last week, that you will just forget the Lord. Now, we talked about last week how it, 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 Paul talked about how in abundance and in need, whether he had plenty or he had little, he had learned contentment. And in a, in a like manner, we have to understand just as when we fail to see God as our provider, we can look at his blessings to us as things we have obtained instead of things he has given us. and We just want more and more. In the same way, we have to understand that there's, a, there's in a similar way that God's blessing in our lives, if we handle it poorly, can turn into spiritual distractions and can lead us, actually, if we're not careful, we'll be led away from the Lord. God's blessing should cause us, what, to, to worship, cause thanksgiving, to cause us to be good stewards, to, to, it, should, it's, it should point us towards Him. However, if we begin to think that it was by our power or it had nothing to do with God's blessing, if we begin to take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing sometimes, but ultimately here what I want you to see is it just becomes a distraction. And so God kind of clarifies a little bit over in Deuteronomy 8. If you go over a couple chapters, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. He says, Be, says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power, by my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swores to your fa- swore to your fathers as it is this day. So he says, the, the temptation is you'll begin to think that it was you, your power and your might and your strength. And we can do this, not, we can do this, first of all, we can do this with physical things, like finances, jobs, family. When we have all we need and we're full and we begin to be tempted to think that we don't need God, or actually we can be tempted to think that we're so blessed by God that He shows on His favor and smiled upon us that, man, things are so great, we just begin to neglect our relationship with God. You know, it's, the, the wheel's not squeaking, so to speak, so we don't oil it. Or, here's another way, spiritual blessings. As a Christ follower, be careful that you don't assume your spiritual growth and where you're at in your walk with Christ, the bad sinful habits that you've seen defeated over the years, the fact that you're not, you're not where you were five years ago, ten years ago, or fifty years ago, and that you've progressed in the faith. If we're not careful, we'll begin to think that that had a lot more to do with us and a lot less to do with the Lord. And we'll begin to be puffed up with pride and think, wow, you know, I've really... I've really grown. I'm really much more mature. And I'm really, we kind of get like this, which is a sign of immaturity. And we start regressing, right? And so it doesn't have to just be physical things. It can be spiritual things. That we become comfortable and dependent upon ourselves instead of the Lord. 
And the warning, he says, is that you would forget the Lord. That's the phrase. That they would no longer treat God as God, treat Him as He deserves to be treated. That they would fill up on abundance and that their minds and that their lives would begin to wander from God. And they would just forget about Him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Christy and I decided we would, we would um, get new cell phone carriers and all this kind of stuff. And we ended up doing it and then undoing it. And all, it was just this crazy, I mean, oh, crazy mess, right? But while we're in there and we're going through all the stuff, the guy, the guy needs information from us. And so it's just Christy and I and the guy that's, that's doing the, the work. And then there's a co-worker sitting beside him. And he says, I, I need a pen. I need a password to create this thing for you. Get, give me something. Give, give me a number or something. So I give him like my birthday. He goes, well, it can't be your birthday. He goes, what's your anniversary? And the guy sitting beside him is like, you know, like a bomb just went off or something. Like, man, what, his wife's here. You're asking him his anniversary. Like, and so I like spit out the digits, you know. And I got to the, the year and I had to pause for like two seconds. Then I went on with it. I remembered it. Because you don't ever say the year. You say how many years you were married. You say the month, the day. You don't think about that. I, remember, I know my anniversary, right? So I don't have any excuses at, at, at this point. But we make a big deal out of that, right? Don't forget your anniversary. Don't forget the birthday. Don't forget. And the reason for that is nobody wants to be forgotten. Nobody wants to feel like an afterthought. But what God is talking about here is much more than a memory lapse. It's a moral lapse. He's talking about more than you just, you kind of just forget something and you kind of get forgetful in your relationship with God. It'd be more like, it's, it's less forgetting an anniversary and more you begin to behave like you're not even married. It's a moral thing. It's more than a simple slip of the mind. In fact, he kind of defines this for it in chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8.11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Disobeying God is the equivalent to forgetting God. You begin to... Because when you do that, you're acting like the Lord's not the Lord. You're acting like God's not God. You're acting like Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior when you live in disobedience. Because it makes no sense for Him to be Lord and for us to say no to anything to Him. It makes no sense. If He's truly Lord and Master and Ruler and He truly owns us and all of our worship, all of our heart is given to Him, then the only answer every time is yes, Lord. And anything else is disobedience. And we're living as though He's not who He is. And we're living as though we're forgetful of the Lord. And he says, the key here is, you can't have a poor relationship with God's Word and a great relationship with God. Our heart towards God's Word reveals our heart towards God. I can't say that enough. It, to disobey God's Word is to disobey God, right? We, we don't have a side deal, right? It's, it's Here's His Word, here, here's what He tells us to do, and it can't be, well, you know, I'm, I don't do this, I put this over here, but I've got this, me and God have a great thing going. No, you don't. Not with the God of this book, right? And so it is the equivalent to disobey His Word is to disobey God. And you can look and you can know very well, according to your relationship with His Word, what your relationship with Him is like. Because this is what He's told. This is, this is His expression. This is, this is Him telling us. This is, this is His leadership in our life. This is, this is the authority that He's given us to go by. And so He's warning them. Do not forget the Lord. And, and the, the worry is that all the abundance and all the good things would become a distraction. And they'd be get so involved in themselves and so focused on themselves and all the good things that they have that they'll no longer see their need for the Lord. And this is a major problem because God demands supremacy in our lives. That brings the second thing I want to point out. True worship, real worship, biblical worship requires God's unique supremacy in our lives. Look at verses 13. 
and 14. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. Him. Him and only Him. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are around you. God is reminding them. They are to fear. To serve. To swear by Him. In other words. He is to consume their life. But if they move away from God. He's letting them know. You're going to move towards another. Because we're worshipers. You notice how quickly he moves from forgetting the Lord. And disobeying the Lord. To worshiping idols. I mean, it's, just, it's all like in one big swoop. He just assumes if they stop worshiping Him properly and giving Him proper due and stop obeying Him and stop walking with Him that they'll start worshiping something else. He just assumes it because we're, we're, we're wired that way. We must always move towards God because we're never neutral. We never coast. We're never neutral in worship. We're always moving in a direction, even towards the Lord or away from the Lord because we're wired to worship. It's a natural digression for us when we get further away from the Lord, when we we tend when we're not pressing into our relationship with Him. It's natural for us to move towards other things to replace Him, because worship is not a choice. Only what or who is the choice. Even spiritually apathetic or spiritually agnostic or even atheist worship in some fashion. It's usually a form of self worship. Don't mean that to be offensive, but it's it's just true. Whatever is supreme in our life is what I mean by that. Whatever you bow to, whatever, it's, it could be a philosophy. It could be a, a way of life, an idea. It could be a person. Whatever it is that drives you, defines you, whatever it is that you look to for happiness, fulfillment, and security, that brings you peace, that, brings, that makes you feel valuable and worth something, all, all those things that we like to think and feel, that's your God at the very core. That's worship. That, that is what you're giving glory to. That is what you will offer yourself up to. That is what you will die to keep and to have. And that is at the very core what it means to have an idol in our heart or in our life. The God of the Bible is such that He demands not only our worship, but to be the only one that we worship. And that we worship Him with all of our heart. And that makes sense, like I said earlier, if He is who the Bible says He is. Now, like I've said before, your spouse doesn't want to be your favorite. They want to be your only, Right? That you're just someone, your boyfriend, girlfriend, don't want to be your favorite. They want to be your, your only. Nobody wants to be number one. They want to be the one, right? And God said, I don't want to be like on the list, right? I, I, want to be, I don't want to be a priority in your life. I want to be your life. I want to consume your life. In idolatry, we fail to honor God as unique and supreme. And the New Testament warns us that just like in the Old Testament, we can fall prey to this. First John 5, 21, for instance. John ends his book with these words, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. A book that's all about knowing God and loving God and what it means to, have, to know that you have a relationship with God ends with the verse, keep yourselves from idols. Because that is the biggest hindrance in our walk with God. Now, what was the biggest temptation for Israel when it comes to idolatry? He said, well, beware lest you give in to the gods of the peoples that are around you. Right? God warns them not to allow themselves to be spiritually led astray by the people who are worshiping false gods of that day. And here's the thing. Most of us in this room are not struggling this morning with worshiping the sun or the moon or the rain or the god of the sun or the moon or the rain. Or you probably don't have a statue at home that you bow down to so many times a day that you make offerings to. You're like, I've never even struggled with the temptation to idolatry. Preacher, you're talking about something I've never even struggled with. No, he says... 
you've got to worry about the gods of the people that are around you. That, that's not what the people around you worship. That, that's not our temptation. That's not because we're more spiritual than they were. It's not because you're more evolved. It's because that temptation doesn't exist for you. Our idols look different. They're success and they're security. They're the praise of man and power and romance and money and things we look to to define us and give us self-worth outside of the Lord Jesus. Those are idols too. They don't have to be wood and stone. They can be ideas and thoughts. Very abstract things. And we can't allow other things to be what defines us and what gives us hope, what makes us feel secure and be our identity and claim that Christ is being treated as preeminent in our lives. We can't do it. We can't run to something else all the time for our identity and our security and say, but Jesus is Lord. You know, that's not what it looks like. Jesus' lordship and his preeminence and his supremacy in our life is never up for debate. But our hearts are. He's always Lord. But our hearts are what's up for debate. See, Christians are called to live with God, the people of God, as they were in the Old Testament, they are in the New Testament. They're called to live with God at the very center of our lives. And it's very simple because he is a, he says, a jealous God. For the Lord your God, verse 15, in your midst is a jealous God. He goes on to warn them of his judgment and his anger and that it would be kindled if they disobeyed and they would be destroyed. He's he's warning them. In other words, listen, I'm going to fulfill this covenant. He's he's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, but it doesn't have to be in your generation. It wasn't the generation before you. It wasn't the generation before. So it doesn't have to be. I'm going to fulfill it, but you personally don't have to be a part of it, is, is is the warning to them here. And see, God's jealousy is not like the sinful jealousy we we think of in humanity. It's not the the kid that didn't make the football team and is jealous of his friend that did kind of thing. Or the girl that didn't make the cheerleading squad and she's jealous of her friend. It's not that nitpicky, silly, sinful jealousy. It's it's more like the jealousy of a husband that that is jealous for the fidelity of his wife and of his marriage. It's it's a healthy, not a crazy, lock you in a room jealousy. But but I, I am I'm this is a this. This relationship is sacred and I will do all it takes to protect and defend it sort of jealousy. It's a holy jealousy that God has for his people, for his bride, that makes perfect sense because we're his. Because we're his. We belong to him and he desires for us to give him all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. And that's a good thing because it... We think, well, if he's jealous for all this and he wants glory and he wants us to love, that just makes God sound awfully selfish. Well, if he's God and he's really what's best, if the, if the best thing in the world is God and the best thing for you is to know God and to love God and to worship God and have him at the very center of your life, if that's what's best for you, God, then, then it makes perfect sense. The, God's desire for his glory and God's desire for your well-being are in sync. They're not at war with one another. He's looking out for your good as he's looking out for his glory. Another way that Israel failed to treat God as supreme in their life is they tested him. We didn't read this this morning, but the very next verse after verse 15 is verse 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. In Exodus 17, the people questioned God's presence with them because they didn't have water. They're in the desert and they're thirsty and they come to this place and there's no water. And like, what are we going to do? And they demand water now. Do something to give us water, Moses, right? We should, we should be back in Egypt. I'd rather be a slave with something to drink than be out here free and, walk, and, and with the Lord and thirsty. 
So give me something now. And so the Lord does. He allows Moses to be able to strike a rock and water comes forth from it. You're familiar with the miracle problem. And that was, the Bible tells us, that they were testing the Lord when they did that. They weren't trusting the Lord, they were testing the Lord. Rather than believe and trust that God would provide for them, they demanded that God perform to their expectation. They tested Him, put Him to the test. Satan tried to tempt Jesus this way in Matthew 4. He was in a desert, much like Israel. And it was in the desert that Israel failed this way, and it was in the desert that Jesus succeeded. And Jesus quoted this verse, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy a lot. And he quoted that when Satan tried to get him to test the Lord, test God. And every time you are in the desert, you have a choice. And I have a choice. We can trust God or we can test God. We can walk with God and trust God or we can demand that God perform up to our expectations. And we can, we can test Him. And that's sinful, just like idolatry. So it's sinful to worship the wrong God, and it's sinful to worship the right God the wrong way. Both are wrong. See, we're created to worship God, to glorify God, or you might say to magnify God with our lives. And idolatry and testing the Lord and disobeying the Lord, all these things are things that we do that, fa- that fail to fulfill our purpose of living life in a, such a way that it magnifies the Lord. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. John Popper has a great illustration for this. And it, you think about a microscope, and you think about a telescope. A microscope takes something that is very tiny, like a just, a just a little molecule, and it makes it bigger so you can see it. And when we magnify the Lord with our lives and glorify Him, that is not what we're doing. We're not taking something or someone that is very small and making Him bigger. But a telescope, on the other hand, takes something that is huge and that is massive, that you're so far away from, it looks tiny. But it's actually massively bigger than you can ever possibly imagine. And it makes it look closer so that it appears more like what it really is. And that's what it means for us to live our lives in such a way that glorify and that magnify the Lord. We're not making the Lord bigger. We're more accurately portraying to the world and the people around us what He's really like. And that's what it means to live for His glory and to magnify His name. And God desired Israel... To live in such a way that they would show the world how glorious he is by loving him with all that they were. Because you glorify and magnify what you love, what you worship. And they failed, just like we failed. And so God sends Jesus, right? And he shows us perfectly and how glorious God is. And he perfectly loves God. And he perfectly obeys God and magnifies God. And, and then lays down his life for us. And dies for our sin. And raises from the dead. And now as believers in Christ. We are to reflect his glory in our lives. Showing the world that he is preeminent. That he is supreme. And so the question becomes. In this battle. With how we're supposed to live. And the temptation that is around us. The distractions that are around us. How do we fight this battle? And not let our blessings and the good things in our lives become distractions. How do you fight to treat God as supreme in your life? That brings us to third observation. Worshippers need to remember what God has done. And that's the key here. Verse 12. Then take care, he says, lest you forget the Lord. The second part of that was, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Notice when God's laying down the law here, he says, now listen, take care lest you forget the Lord. And then he immediately reminds them what he did. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. As God warns them, He reminds them, right? That, and what God had done in their lives was a revelation in a sense of who He is. And He's the God who saves and God who rescues. Now, if you go down to verses 20 through 25, 
God tells them how to pass this on to their children. And in that, we kind of learn how to apply this memory thing, this remembering thing. He says, he says, when you're, he says your son's going to come to you. When your son comes to you and he says this, why we got all these rules? Why we got all these laws? Why do we have to do this and do that? We've got these Ten Commandments things going on over here. What's the point of all this? He says, when, when he asks you that, because he's going to ask, because kids ask questions. Right? They're curious. And they're going to say, why? That's a good question. That's a very good question. Why? He starts, I'm going to read it to you. He starts not with, because I said so. Not with, because he's the Lord. And that's perfectly fine. He starts with what he has done. In verse 21, he says, Then you shall say to your son, this is what you tell him when he asks why, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed... Signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, to, for, our, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this command before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. God wanted the story of the Exodus to be told, to be remembered, so that when temptation arose, they wouldn't just think about the rules and the commandments of God, but the God behind the rules and behind the commandment, the God who loved them, right? We hear things like, you know, when people grow up, you know, and they become famous or they do really well, you'll hear things like, you know, maybe especially if you're from a small town like I am, people would say things to people, I don't forget where you came from, right? Somebody goes off to college to become some big athlete or something. Don't forget where you came from. Now, what do they mean by that? Are they, are they afraid that they're literally going to forget where they were born? No, they mean, it's a behavior thing. You begin to act differently, right? That, that, that's, what they're, that's what they're worried about. That's what they're talking about when they, when they say that. I, I saw a story the other day on TV with this college football player who, who his, his, he, every year he goes and he volunteers with Habitat for Humanity building homes. Building homes for Habitat for Humanity. And the interesting thing about it was he grew up in a Habitat for Humanity home because his mom went out because she wanted to get them out of a difficult situation and out of kind of a bad place to live and wanted them to have this this other home. She goes out and puts in enough volunteer hours on top of her full-time job for them to be able to, 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 to qualify for a Habitat for Humanity home. So then a bunch of people come and build them a home. And I thought, what a reminder for him. And now he's this big successful athlete and will one day make millions of dollars doing what he does. What a reminder for him every year when he goes and he builds these homes and not just give money towards them, but uses his hands and uses the nails and uses the hammer of the hard work of his mother and the generosity of people that helped him when he was young. Right? It's a powerful reminder. And we need reminders, right? We need reminders to steer us in the right direction. There's certain things from the past that we do need to remember. And believers today don't have less to look back on and remember than they did in the Old Testament. We have more. If it was important for Israel to remember and to pass down the story of the Exodus, how much more important is it for you to remember and pass down the story of your personal Exodus? Because their exodus in the Old Testament pointed to a better exodus that happened some 2,000 years later. When a better Moses came along and laid down his life for the people of God to lead us out of slavery to sin and death and hell and idolatry and all these sort of things and into a right relationship with God. Let us out of death into life. 
That, that's our exodus. That's our story. And when, in our walk with God, it's important for us to not just remember God has said this, but remember what God has done. Now, we do that by remembering what he said because it's found in the Bible. But we need to remember what he's done. We need to remember his activity in the past and what he's done on our behalf and what Christ did and came for us and then how that has been appropriated into our life. So that sounds awfully simple. It is. and It's awfully important and awfully neglected in many of our lives. Listen to Exodus, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. Common verse, verses 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then Paul goes into this list of what it was like to be lost. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4 he says, but God... There's your exodus. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why do you think Paul told Ephesians that? He's about to go into how they need to live the Christian life. You read the book of Ephesians. It gets over chapter 4 or so. It gets less about the theology of who God is and who you are as a church and more about here's how you to live your life. He gets into spiritual warfare and how you're supposed to live in the home and how husbands and wives are supposed to behave and how children are supposed to behave and all these sort of things, being an imitator of God, Ephesians 5.1. He gets into all that. But before he gets into all that, he gets into what God has done. He gets into what God has done. Because the battle for supremacy in your heart is best fought with an eye towards the cross. We don't merely serve a God who says, I want to be the center of your life. We serve a God who, even though we didn't deserve it and refused to put him at the center of our life, even though he's worthy of worship if he didn't do anything, right? He rescued us. He chose to rescue us and deliver us. And he has delivered us from idolatry and from allowing trivial things to be our master. And so we have to remind ourselves of that. So we have to ask ourselves why we would go back. When Christ died, we died. When Christ rose, we rose. You get over to 1 Corinthians 10, whole chapter about not repeating the mistakes of the past. Don't be an idolater like Israel was an idolater. That's like the heart of that passage. Don't go and think that you can, that you can go to idols temple and worship idols and at the same time worship the Lord Jesus. And then he reminds them, he says, talks about the cup of the Lord. He talks about the bread. He talks, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about it's a participation in the death of Christ. It's a participation in the, the body of Christ. And in his exaltation to them to not walk in idolatry and walk away from the Lord, he reminds them of the death of Christ. Because the battle for supremacy in your heart is best fought with an eye on the cross. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. To remember what he has done. So maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're still, so to speak, in Egypt, right? Maybe you're still enslaved, not literally, but spiritually to your sin. Maybe you've yet to see what's so glorious about God, what all the fuss is about. And the good news of the Bible is that God has sent his son to rescue you, that you can have your own personal exodus from sin, from slavery to sin, from death, from hell, from the very wrath of God. That God has loved you and sent his son to die in your place. To be raised from the dead so that you can have life in him. And that you will never be able to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That only happens when you surrender to Christ who has loved God appropriately in your place. And you believe on him and his spirit comes to live inside of you and enables you to love God. And to love your neighbor like God wants you to. Maybe you're here this morning as a believer let me ask you this. Are you allowing the abundance and the victories even in your life to be catalysts for thanksgiving and worship? Or have they become distractions and temptations? That can get the best of us. Are you treating God as supreme in your life this morning? 
Are you keeping yourself, as First John says, from idols? Don't, we have to be careful not to move away, but to constantly be moving towards the Lord. If you find yourself this morning cold and dry spiritually, go, go home, pick up Ephesians 2, read verses 1 through 10, read the whole thing about your exodus. And allow God to use that to lead you to worship today. Usually when we go through those times, it, I've never found someone who's neglecting to live with God at the center of their lives that's not also neglecting to have a habit of being in God's Word. This goes together. I mean, you, you might be reading your Bible every day and still, be doing all, and still be way off course. That's possible. But I've not met anyone who is on course and they're living just like God wants them to live and they're walking in sync with the Lord. Not perfectly, but they're a growing, abounding Christian, living the abundant life, and God's Word is nowhere to be found in their life. I've yet to meet that person. And I don't think I ever will. God has just not designed the Christian life to work in that way. We are desperate and dependent upon His Word. I hope you have a plan this year in some way, some sort of diet for the Word of God in your life. We talk a lot about physical diets at the beginning of the year, losing weight and exercising, and those are all good and fine things. But let's make sure we have a plan for a spiritual diet to be in God's Word throughout the year.